guest what, what is it, what's the word here guest co-host guest host guest guest uh podcast uh, i think guest, guest is the right word guest guest, guest is good special, very special guest <laughs> very special guest. Guest. very special episode hi everyone welcome back to cheap talk my name is jeff capelo i'm an associate professor of government here at william and mary and joining me as always is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I got to say happy Valentine's Day. We're recording this on uh, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Marcus. And today we have a very special guest. We do. Joining us in the studio is Nicholas Wheeler. Nick is a professor of international relations at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He is the author or editor of too many books to name, but which we will list in the show notes for those interested, including work on the security dilemma, humanitarian intervention, international diplomacy, and drones in international law. He is a non-resident senior fellow at BASIC, a UK-based think tank that works on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. And he just happens to be visiting us here in lovely Williamsburg, Virginia, for a conference on East Asia. So, Nick, welcome to Cheap Talk. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm so excited. This is fan- this is going to be great. This is so exciting. And we're, we're recording in person, which is something we never do. We're at a studio with real equipment. Hopefully it sounds, well, I'm going to say, hopefully I sound better than I normally do, which I, I sound great usually, but even better. Yes. Now that we've gotten you like some real, normally Marcus just kind of yells at his the general direction of his computer. But, <laughs> but today we have, we have upped our, our equipment game. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to have a lot of great things to talk about with great audio quality. And maybe um, we can kick off by talking a little bit about what we were talking about in our last podcast, which is the role of computer-mediated communications in international diplomacy. So I'm in a proud owner of a Apple Vision Pro headset. Shout out to the Global Research Institute for, for making that possible here at William & Mary. So we have a project, Marcus and I, that looks at the role of computer-mediated international diplomacy. Oh, wow. Technology-mediated, I should oh, say. Oh, that's very cool. So like virtual reality, augmented, rea- augmented reality as a way to facilitate the kind of face-to-face diplomacy that, you know, you guys love, love to talk this about. This is what Haywood Alco was onto. Oh, way back like in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know Haywood well, but I knew him a little bit. And he was... Starting to think about all this, how to use computer-mediated language programs to get an access onto all of these things that we're interested in getting at, diplomacy, uh, trying to understand these these interpersonal dynamics. So now the technology is starting to... Well, that's the the question, right? That's the bet. Like, is, is the technology at the point where we can start to actually see a reasonable use of this? Maybe not today, but in the next five, 10 years, like... And people are saying that this, this Apple product is so good that it, it sort of unveils this whole potential world for diplomacy that we couldn't previously really see because the technology was too cartoonish and kind of weak. Be- because people will use these virtual reality sets in order to have digitally mediated interaction. That's the idea. So instead of going on Zoom. So could you be in a nuclear crisis and Kennedy and Khrushchev, if they were, in, if you go play that kind of factual out, they could actually have had these VR sets. This guy gets it. And then we could have had that face-to-face interaction that Marcus is always telling me is an important thing for international diplomacy. Whenever there's a leader meeting, we go on this podcast and I say, could that, couldn't that meeting have been a Zoom call or an email? Did we, did they really need, did Biden really need to fly there? Yeah. Right. And he's always saying, yes, there's something special or or important about face-to-face interaction. And so I guess the question is, can we capture some of those some of what's special about face-to-face diplomacy in the context of these technology-mediated interactions. So we wrote a chapter together yeah. on can you build trust in Zoom, uh-huh. asking that very question. And we argued that, you know, you can't get as close to face-to-face interaction, but you can get something which is still very important and very significant and which the merchants of the ancient world would have, you know, been very happy to have had. Right rather than, you know, all of the way they had to do it by through intermediaries and, you know, not knowing whether their goods were going to end up in the right place at the end. To have had that, to have had that Zoom or VR kind of connection. And, you know, the area I work on, nuclear crisis diplomacy, it's really interesting because in a fast-breaking nuclear crisis, multipolar most likely, there just won't be time to meet face-to-face. Right. Because this thing will be moving at such speed potentially. Right. We're moving at such speed, potentially across multiple domains. So you could imagine there'll be a space dimension, a cyber dimension, an AI dimension. 
there'll be the, the more conventional kind of you know dimensions of maritime air um and so on all of that will be going on in this space and how are they going to communicate how are they what type of communication are they going to have and maybe vr opens up something really interesting there in terms of how they might be able to do that and does that then address our question about barriers to outsiders and yeah very interesting so, so that's the 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 idea here and i mean i guess what i'm trying to push marcus on as part of this project is to identify what are the essential components of those face-to-face interactions that make them more impactful than other kinds of interactions? And can we then isolate within these VR worlds or augmented reality approaches those particular characteristics and say, okay, here's where the technology needs to go so that we'll be able to deal with micro-expressions. Or here's where the technology needs to go so that we'll be able to deal with body language effectively or barriers to outsiders. So all of these particular characteristics that we think of as being important for face-to-face interactions, where, where can we see that on the technology uh, trajectory? Because my contention about the, the new Apple headset isn't that this is something that Joe Biden's going to strap on his head and to talk to a foreign leader. It's that it shows the way forward in a way that all the previous technology in this area didn't really. That there's enough of a, a technological advance in this product that you can now see how it could in a future iteration be used impactfully in international diplomatic ways. Whereas like, you know, the previous gaming headsets just, just, it was hard to see. It's hard to see. That. That's really fascinating. The kind of the journey that the two of us have been on is very much trying to understand the power of face-to-face diplomacy in relation to two kind of fundamental questions, really. The first is intention understanding. And Marcus has written a brilliant book making the case that face-to-face diplomacy opens up an unparalleled space for intention understanding that you just don't get with any other type of signaling mechanisms. But the, the kind of the challenge that he leaves us with is what about if increased intention understanding doesn't actually lead to trust in a relationship? And what is it that can take you from increased intention understanding into trust because you may end up uh, with much better intention understanding but not actually uh, in a position where you're able to move towards cooperation there's a you know famous uh, moment when obama and putin are meeting i think it's september 2014 at the press conference afterwards you know putin says you know we understand each other perfectly well we each know what the other wants we just completely disagree echoing that famous line you know uh, from francis the first about charles the fifth you know, why are you and Francis fighting? You know, um, you know, my cousin and I are in perfect accord. We both want the Duchy of Milan. <laughs> so, you know, so increased intention understanding is not necessarily going to lead to trust. And we had that with Kennedy and Khrushchev meeting in October, sorry, in June 1961 in, in uh, Vienna over Berlin. Berlin, in many ways, like the Duchy of Milan. They gained a much better understanding of each other at Vienna for all the reasons Marcus argues, but they didn't have trust from it and a few months later they were in a major crisis over berlin when Ken, when khrushchev put the war um erected the war so the the next step in the argument was to try to think about okay in what ways then can face diplo- face-to-face diplomacy unlock trust and that's what i tried to do in my 2018 book trusting enemies to try to identify the conditions under which trust might develop face-to-face interaction but what neither of us have done had done at that point was to kind of identify what it was that explains why sometimes you get these outcomes that we talk about, increased intention, understanding, trust development, but other times you don't. And that's what the new book's about, personal chemistry that we're very close to finishing. And in that book, we're drawing on Randall Collins's work in microsociology in particular, but also ever more broadly in microsociology, to try to understand the conditions under which social bonds develop. Because we think ultimately that trust develops out of social bonding processes of social bonding and in the new book we're trying to understand those processes interrogate them develop a model building on collins which uh we anticipated in our 2019 article in international theory on social bonding in diplomacy and then leverage that to look at some case studies of interpersonal interaction can I just say that's a much more coherent description of Marcus's work than I've ever heard from Marcus? Jeff, you, you, you have a new co-host here because I mean, this is – I. You should hear him try to explain his stuff. It's, this, is, this is way better. We're, you should – Brought a tear to my eye listening yeah, we, to this we guy. Should, we should record that and then when anyone asks you what you do, 
Just just play that clip. <laughs> to be fair, it was a little long. It was a little long. We'll get down to like a minute, but but yeah, no, that was that was perfect. It was like our whole trajectory of the research program. We've how long have we been working together? A decade or so? About yeah. a decade? Yeah, and it's funny because I encountered him. Well, I have to thank Bill Wolforth, who was kind enough to say to me at a seminar that he came to in Birmingham, a, a workshop, that when I was telling him about my book, and I've known Bill a while, Bill said, you've got to read Marcus Holmes's PhD. You've just got to read it. He's got an article coming out in International Organization, and you guys are going to be made for one another. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So I got hold of the PhD, discovered that um, Alexander Wendt and uh, Jennifer Mitson were the uh, supervisors, people that I both knew well and great respect for. Uh, thought, okay, this looks interesting, <laughs> and started to engage it. And the thought that started to develop in my head was, well, if he's right, then I've just spent 30 years barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> <laughs> because Marcus was arguing that the security dilemma was escapable. And I'd spent my academic career engaging, being challenged by and exploring and trying to understand better the security dilemma concept in international relations. And so this was really interesting because for me, the security dilemma and I set this out at length in my book with Ken Booth in 2008, uh, which kind of brought together a lot of theorizing. We argue that the security dilemma should be conceived of as the existential condition of uncertainty that faces actors in international relations. So for us, it's, it's that uncertainty. And, and that differs from the way a lot of US scholars, for example, understand the security dilemma, which is in terms of the dynamics that can develop between states who believe they're taking actions for defensive reasons, but which then the other side interprets as offensive. Right. And you can get into then Jervis's kind of spiral. I think that describes the dynamics that can arise out of the security dilemma. It doesn't describe the dilemma itself. And if you go back to Hertz's classic kind of understanding of it in the 1951 book, Political Realism, Political Idealism, Hertz says that what creates the dilemma is the uncertainty and the anxiety that this generates about the intentions of others. So I thought if he's right, then we can find a way out of the security dilemma. It's not inescapable and it's no longer this existential condition. So then I, started, I reached out to him and we began this conversation then initially on email. And then not too long after that, we started meeting, going to conferences together. Face to face. Yeah, <laughs> Mark, absolutely. We moved it from the, ver from the um, to. textual to the... To okay. the well, that's how you build trust. Yeah. Evidently. Yeah. And obviously, Marcus wasn't saying that face to face diplomacy dealt with the, un the future uncertainty problem, who comes next and all that. So it was only a partial escape, but nevertheless, it was an escape. And so that was kind of basis that we got together. And then we started talking about our two books, which were developing in tandem, talking a lot. And we yeah, had a lot of virtual communications as we were writing the two books and they very much kind of developed in conversation with one another and you know Marcus made an enormous contribution to my thinking and indeed to the to the way my book unfolded so it just became natural then that we would kind of move these two parallel but highly kind of convergent projects into a new kind of shared book project which we're very close now to completing so give me the thesis for the for the joint book the thesis for the joint book is that we can sort of model and understand when leaders hit it off with one another and when they develop what we talk about as personal chemistry, which is, which is not, sometimes I think about personal chemistry in a sort of mundane sense, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I like this guy more than I like this person or I like this woman more and we have to sort of get along. But we mean it in a more sort of, you know, foundational sense that you're able to, with certain other individuals that you're interacting with, see them as human beings like yourself, understand where they're coming from, from their you know, security concerns and what their, you know, preferences are and understanding what's sort of motivating their, their behavior that you can understand on the other side that they are in a similar situation to the situation I find myself in. And my actions, I sort of begin to understand are actually detrimental to the relationship that we're in. It, it sort of is um, not great from a, a security perspective precisely because I'm contributing to the insecurity that the other person feels. And so Nick and, and uh, Ken Booth have developed this idea of security dilemma sensibility. And I'll let Nick explain exactly what that is. But the basic idea is that I can sort of understand that we're in a security dilemma at a, at a very deep level, right? And I can understand and appreciate that what I might be doing is contributing to your insecurity. 
And I think that's difficult to do. You know, I think it's difficult to actually get over that, that sort of idea in your head that you're the peaceful one. You're the one that has this, you know, sort of desire to see the, the security situation be better and recognize that actually the, the actions that you see as being just normal, you know, defensive actions are being interpreted on the other side, potentially as, as making them more insecure. So I think, you know, some of the examples we talk about are things like, you know, Abel Archer in 1983, Ronald Reagan coming to this realization, like, is it, is it possible that the Soviets actually believed that this NATO exercise was real? I can't believe that they thought that. And, and he, he had made that comment because to him, it was completely anathema to the idea of who the United States was and who, the, who Ronald Reagan was. And that the idea that the Soviets would actually believe that we were going to attack them in a first strike just seemed, seemed crazy. Um, but it wasn't crazy to the Soviets, right? And so this is part of SDS, it's the security dumbness sensibility, sort of getting a, an understanding that you are, in fact, part of, part of the problem. So the, the idea is that we can use microsociological theories that have been developed to understand the conditions under which all of the things I just talked about begin to, to develop. Like when you see leaders actually coming to uh, a new relationship that they're, they're entering on the basis of developing this, what we talk about as mutual security dilemma sensibility. And I would say it's, it's, it's rare. It doesn't happen a lot. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. It's certainly one of those things where, you know, sort of there has to be a, a, a serendipitous moment. And this is often the case in diplomacy, actually, where there are these kind of moments in time where leaders will, you know, just see something for a second that they couldn't see before. Uh, and these are kind of the moments I think we're, we're most interested in, where it all kind of comes together and you get a new understanding of what the other side is all about. So Randall Collins uh, gave us this theory that we're basically running with and trying to apply uh, in diplomacy. And it's fascinating because it kind of combines what we've been working on individually, um, which has been very much sort of in a psychological uh, sort of vein, I think, for the most part, and bringing this kind of new sociological element to us, despite the fact that neither of us are sociologists. But it's been really fun to kind of dive into this, this new literature as well. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant uh, exposition of what we're about. The, the really interesting sort of move into the sociological side of the work and the emphasis on social interactionism, I think, has been you know, a really important part of the journey. But also, I think we've appreciated that the relationship between the interactional and the dispositional becomes really critical to this. So it's not enough just to focus on the how of the process of social interaction, which is a major part of what the new book is about, saying that there's there's something really important about the how of social interaction in terms of explaining whether we get these outcomes that Marcus is talking about. But also, it's really important to try to think about whether some leaders are primed for security dilemma sensibility and some leaders aren't. So, you know, Reagan responded to Abel Archer in a fundamentally different way to Weinberger, the U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time. He didn't change his enemy image of the Soviet Union one iota despite being exposed to the same intelligence information about Abel Archer. He just thought that, you know, there was nothing in that the United States needed to do differently. And this is because he's operating with what we call a peaceful defensive self-image. And Butterfield was the first, the English historian at Cambridge, was the first to kind of really capture this really nicely, that, you know, we can fear others terribly. You know, we can have this, what he talks about, as this vivid fear of others but we can't enter into their counterfear. We can't understand why they should feel nervous of us because we believe that we don't pose any hostile threat to the other side. And what Butterfield said was that diplomats and leaders are not capable at the time of entering into the counterfear of the other. And perhaps in a sort of uh, slight arrogance, he argued that that was the responsibility of historians to reconstruct, after the guns have fallen silent, as he puts it, to reconstruct the narrative where both sides actually could have peaceful and defensive intentions, but find themselves trapped in a terrible war that neither really intended. And what Robert Jervis did was he built upon, elaborated, gave a very important psychological foundation through the work on perceptions, brilliant work on perceptions and misperceptions. He kind of took that Butterfield idea and developed it into what becomes the spiral model of international conflict in, of, in chapter three of perception and misperception. And I first came across the security dilemma, not through Herbert Butterfield or indeed through John Hertz, but as a first year undergraduate student in international relations, reading perception and misperception in international politics. And that was my first encounter with the concept of the security dilemma. And no one in the field has done more than Jervis to bring that concept alive and develop it and give it the social scientific foundations 
and do so much with it in an amazingly uh, important career uh, than, than anyone else working on the security dilemma, and I doubt anyone will in the future. But what Jervis leaves us with is an incredibly powerful set of analytical tools to help us make sense of you know, the world around us. For me and for the field, uh, it's a terrible loss that he's no longer writing and researching. Jeff, this is uh, devastating for us because he is so much more articulate and, and <laughs> I, I'm bright. Thinking, we can't hear this. We can't. Yeah, people are going to We're going to have to put this in the trash. This yeah. is not. Or, or we'll have to have him on every week. Right. Yeah. One those are, those are awesome. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> it's fun. So, I mean, I am a big fan of uh, Jervis's work, but I am uh, maybe a security dilemma skeptic. I think okay. I'm, it's fair to say I'm approaching it from, I approach international relations from a more rationalist perspective. Mm-hmm. So I guess my follow-up question here would be, how much of conflict in the world is the security dilemma really able to explain? So if you look at current conflicts happening, yeah. so do we think Vladimir Putin is, has a peaceful worldview in, and he's trying to defend himself, really, by invading a neighbor? I mean, that, that to me stretches what we would normally think of as a, as a security dilemma structure. One of the things that we've discussed a lot over the years, I think, is this question of to what extent, you know, like you're, you're asking, Jeff, to what extent are some of the more sort of famous historical cases really driven by this, you know, sort of defensive insecurity versus just pure, you know, offensive intent? So you might interpret what, what Putin is doing, for example, as being just purely offensive in nature, wants to, you know, reconstruct the, you know, the, the, the power of the Soviet Union to, to in the Russian Empire or something along those lines. Or it could be private information with incentives to misrepresent. Bargaining failures. Right. It could be a bargaining failure. Lots of different uh, uh, potentials here. Right. And I think one of the, the legitimate challenges of analyzing these cases in the present is that this is a very difficult question to answer. Right. A lot of our work is historical in nature um, because it's much easier, you know, when documents are declassified and you can look at the conversations that are going on. You know, in the room at the time, it's it's better. You're better able to sort of assess, I think, what the leaders were were thinking and the and what the communications were like, which give you a better sense of whether their concerns were defensive in nature and what what they were actually talking about. I think in the present, it's really difficult to piece these things together because we're we're looking at you know Putin's statements, we're looking at you know his actions, of course, we're looking at what other you know leaders um, are saying about Putin, and we're looking at you know what his own you know, maybe generals that have, uh, you know, sort of gone the other way, like Rogozin have said. But it's, I think it's tricky. I think it's fair to say in the, in the present sort of cases, it's really difficult to get at this uh, intention question. And a lot of our work has been, you know, sort of on this, you know, what are, what are the preferences? Are there, is this an assurance game or is this a prisoner's dilemma? Like, what are we, what are we talking about here? And I just think it's easier to do that in, in these historical cases than it is in any given present case. Nick, I don't know. Do you see it similarly? No, I mean, that's, I think that's a great point. The... In a sense, the the power of the spiral model is, in Jervis's framing, is that it operates most strongly when decision makers aren't aware that they're in a spiral. So that, that's, that's, that's the first critical point to make. And it's only when they become aware of the spiral that they might then find ways of loosening it, although, and de-escalating it, coming out of it, even awareness of it may not be enough because of the you know, argument about, can you really send that costly signal if it turns out they have malign intent? And of course, the brilliance of Jervis's framing in chapter three of perception and misperception is that the spiral model sits alongside the deterrence model. So, you know, he recognized all too well that uh, conflicts may well be sometimes driven, not by the security dilemma. But of course, the, the challenge is knowing when it's a security dilemma and knowing when it isn't. And in that sense, you're throwing back on the fundamental problem of intention understanding. And indeed, what for me is the essence of the security dilemma, that uncertainty about intentions. Uh, I do want to just provide, fill in a little background for those listeners who may not have read Jervis recently. If I'm building up my, my weapons, my domestic uh, military capability, my neighbor can respond to that capability in a couple of different ways. So one way is my neighbor can see this buildup and feel that that buildup suggests my hostile intent and thus build up their own weapon systems, their own military. And that situation makes me less safe. 
And that's the spiral model yeah. where my military buildup is interpreted as threatening. So it results in a military buildup on the other side. So I'm in a worse position yeah. than if I hadn't have built up my military in the first place. But there's another angle on this. And that is if I build up my own military, my neighbor might think, wow, that that guy's pretty strong. I don't want to mess with him. Hmm. And that's the deterrence model where building up my own military capabilities makes me more safe because it deters my neighbor from aggression. And so the, this kind of contrast between these two models is what Jervis is drawing attention to in his work. And the problem here is that one of these is probably right in the real world in any given case, but we don't necessarily know which it is at the time. And that makes designing policy around these theories particularly tricky. Precisely. It's, a very, it's very important to remember that you're not going to find the spiral model unless either it's being brought out from a conflict later by historians or the actors themselves are reconceptualizing the conflict through the exercise of security dilemma sensibility. So if we start to see actors starting to exercise security dilemma sensibility and interpreting a conflict as a spiral situation, of course, they might have it wrong. And the one side that starts to think of it as a spiral and acts on it could find itself in real trouble. So if both of them can come to that realization and share that with one another, and actually it is not cheap talk and people are not masquerading their real intentions, then the possibility opens up for what we call shared security dilemma sensibility, as Marcus was saying, where the two actors are in that position. And that's what we argue Reagan and Gorbachev uh, were able to arrive at. Now, the Reagan-Gorbachev story is a really interesting one. And again, this links to my own personal autobiography, I suppose. because. If you go back to 1984-85, I remember as a, you know, I was just finishing, just going to, to my first year as a tutor at Aberystwyth University where I met Ken Booth. And I remember us having a lot of conversations in the winter of 1985, in the first term when I was teaching at Aberystwyth University, about the risks of nuclear war. Ken, in fact, had an article that was forthcoming at that point called World War Three: How Will History Judge? And it's a great article, and it's a great contribution. But what none of us knew at the time, which is exactly Marcus's point about the problem of uh, the rearview mirror, is that Reagan and Gorbachev were beginning to move into a very different alignment with one another. So, you know, I remember the Geneva summit happening at the time, but I don't remember thinking this is a groundbreaking moment in the relationship. And of course, it's the backwards induction problem Geneva now looks like something fundamentally, when they met in November 1985, Geneva looks like it was this kind of really, really important moment in the story. But we didn't realize that at the time. And I remember even in 1988, after Gorbachev had stood up in the United Nations and announced these massive conventional cuts in Europe and taken away NATO's nightmare scenario of a 48 warning, short warning surprise attack that NATO was really worried about during the Cold War, this fear that they would come across the inner German border, very short warning time. Um, you know, I, I remember working at that time in a think tank where people were still interpreting the next morning after this speech, Gorbachev as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And I was making suggestions at the time that maybe when we were being canvassed for our views, and I made suggestions at the time that perhaps this was the moment to think about NATO making an offer to give up short-range nuclear forces. And there was this debate about whether, you know, short-range nuclear forces could be uh, taken out of the, which Bush, of course, subsequently does, George H.W. Bush, could be taken out of the European theater. And people were talking about my ideas as ones that really we shouldn't be taking seriously in national security <laughs> policy. And this was, and this was, and no names, but, but or, or any of that, but, but this was an interesting moment for me to realize, you know, and now having done enormous amounts of work on this historically, you look back and you, you can see that there were, you know, it, it was a fundamental transformation in the relationship right. that was taking place, but we didn't see it. So I think Marcus's point is a profoundly important one. But all that said, I, you know, coming back to your question about, about Putin, I think this is very difficult. I think there are, there are kind of two responses that are worth exploring. The first is that Jervis is brilliance of this framework is that Jervis is explicit that sometimes uh, 
you know, neither spiral nor deterrent models might actually help us. And, and Jack Snyder went on to make this argument very nicely in relation to the security dilemma in 1914, mm-hmm. that neither spiral nor deterrent axioms would probably have got us out of that crisis. And that, I think, is a salutary message. And the reason why is because sometimes people believe they can only be secure if other people are insecure. And that they can't, and then to take Glaser's kind of framing, you can't find a way of making the adversary secure without the cost to you if it turns out that they have malign intent to be just too great. In fact, that's how Charlie Glaser defines the security dilemma, that you can't increase your adversary's sense of security without decreasing your own to such an extent that it's not acceptable for you to make that move. He defines the dilemma in that way. And so in 1914, what Snyder's saying is, and others, is that there wasn't a way that the European states could have made themselves secure without making the other insecure. So the question for me is, with where we are with Putin, is are we in a situation where, to put it uh, in slightly, I think, maybe too stark a formulation, but is it the situation where this Russian challenge that we face is one where Putin... Uh, is beyond reassurance. What would NATO have to do to reassure Putin that there really wasn't any threat uh, that's posed by Ukraine, for example, joining NATO, that's posed by these, uh, Ukraine joining the EU and so on? What would it take to reassure Russia? And is it that the definition of security that Putin has just can't be achieved without the insecurity of others. In which case, it's not a security dilemma framing, but it raises the question whether there is a way of finding a path to mutual security if in the end what Putin wants is some measure of security. And the other issue I think I'd bring into this is the issue of status. You know, LeBeau's made a very strong argument and others that in the end Putin feels humiliated right. and that this is about status, it's about Russia being restored, you know, the greatest calamity in the 20th century, he said, is the, is the end of the Soviet Union. And so that kind of whole idea that we're not being accorded the status we deserve, that we, Russia, need to be recognized in that way. And I think that takes you again beyond the security dilemma framing, but it puts you into a situation where you're thinking about, is there a way then of providing some um, sense of status that would make Putin feel satisfied that is not incompatible fundamentally with the security of uh, the countries next next to Russia that fear for their uh, security, you know, Ukraine, so on. Or is it possible to find some path that can you know can satisfy that status and satisfy their security? Or is that fundamentally com- incompatible? And I think we need to take we need to think a lot more about the relationship between status and security, and that's a real challenge. And one of my PhD students, former PhD students. Kiara Cavasio, who's now program manager at the uh, London-based NGO BASIC, the British American Security Information Council, she's done a lot of really interesting work on the intersection of status and security, and she's developed this concept, uh, which she has an article on international relations on, on the status security dilemma and how we can get into security dilemmas around status, uh, which if we had a better understanding of one another's status concerns, we might be able to find a way of reassuring that. So building on this uh, Bill Wolforth again, building on Bill and others' work on the status security dilemma, she's developed a, an equivalent of the concept of security dilemma sensibility, which she calls status recognition sensibility, which is where you recognize these status security di- dilemmas. And I'm glad you brought up the status because, I mean, this is often – discussed as uh, NATO expansion, you know, at the end of the Cold War is the the main sort of driver of Putin's either insecurity or his you know, the, the disagrees with, with NATO expansion. But I think this, this idea that at the end of the Cold War, the opportunity that was missed was thinking seriously about Russia's status post-1990, 1991, and how you bring Russia into the international order and integrate them economically, the security perspective. That That seems to me to be one of the, the missed moments uh, at the end of the Cold War. So I think, I think oftentimes NATO expansion gets, is the one that people talk to and that's, it's important. Uh, but there were other things going on in the, in the early 1990s, through, through the 90s actually, that, that might not have paid as much of attention as it should have to how Russia was going to deal with the Soviet Union's decline. I think there's another really important point here that maybe Putin was beyond any kind of reassurance by 2014 with Crimea. You know, may, maybe by the time you got to that point in the story, 
you know, maybe the in the end, the only way to deal with him, you know, would be the deterrence model. But what's really interesting is that the Putin of 2004 was arguably a very different Putin than the Putin from 2012, 14, let alone 22. And were there moments in the journey where different paths could have been taken? Thomas Forsberg and Heike Patamaki have just written a really lovely book called Debating Ukraine's War and using a critical realist perspective to look at alternative pathways and to think about counterfactuals and to look at causal conditions and complexes. And a lot of that embraces the question about why, how was Russia treated in the 90s? The whole attempt at liberalization and at the same time, you know, was the economic restructuring that was promised really forthcoming? And, you know, on the one hand, you were trying to achieve kind of political liberalization and economic liberalization, but were you really being prepared to make the real commitments that were needed in terms of bringing Russia into the, the international economic structure in the way that, in the end, there was a lot of talk about that, but did it really happen? And there's obviously the whole question about, you know, if the relationship between the US and Russia under Medvedev had been... You know, if more had been done there, I mean, they achieved the New START Treaty. That's obviously very important. But in the end, Putin does come back into power. There's a question about just how much Medvedev was really, you know, an independent agent. And there's a lot of debates about that, of course. And now we see his role. And obviously, it's very hard to then remember that this was the Russian president who came to the United States at Burgers in Washington with Obama. They had this relationship, I think, of trust. There were strong bonds between them. And it's it's hard now seeing that role, perhaps to to, to, to remember that period. So there, there is the question there about whether there were moments whether more could have been done or was it in the end domestically driven that he was going to come back in as president. But even coming back in as president when he did... Then, of course, there's a whole set of questions around the color revolutions and around what, you know, whether more could have been done to think about alternative security arrangements that might have contributed to a greater sense of security and a greater sense of uh, status, you know, LeBeau's idea of spirit, that this would have been recognition. What we show in our article on the Cuban Missile Crisis and what Mark Wicker argues in his book uh, on emotional dynamics of decision-making where he has a case study of the Cuban Missile Crisis is how important it was for Khrushchev to be recognized by Kennedy as a co-manager in de-escalating the crisis. That in many ways, Khrushchev's decision to deploy the missiles can be traced to a sense that Kennedy was humiliating him uh, in a number of different ways and that he wasn't being accorded the status that he felt he deserved. And the de-escalation of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we argue owes an enormous amount to the fact that both leaders recognised their shared responsibility, that they couldn't do this on their own, they needed one another, and that they were treating each other as equals, that they had this enormous power to blow the world up or to navigate it away. The very language that Reagan uses with Gorbachev in Geneva in November 85, we're the two men who can blow the world up, but we're also the only two men who can steer it to peace. And so Khrushchev felt that he was being brought in to a different kind of relationship, and after the crisis, they tried very hard to develop and build on that in a lot of different ways. So I think there's a really there's a really interesting set of questions here around were there alternative pathways at different times in the journey and what more might the West have done? And the Putin that wanted to be part of NATO early on and who talked about the possibility of Russia being part of NATO and, you know, people like NATO Secretary General, you know, George Robertson has talked about this, that they had conversations about whether Russia might join NATO. And James Baker wrote an article about this saying it's time to bring Russia into NATO. So you can look back and I think that's always the danger, right? That's one of the themes that's coming out of the conversation is that it's easy to look back and think, it was inevitable that we were going to end up where we did and Ukraine and everything. But actually, there might have been alternative pathways along the journey where different policies could have led to very different outcomes. So where we are is clearly exceptionally challenging, but we do need to think about how we got here and what the lessons are for going forward with other, in other conflicts which haven't developed to this point. And obviously, one's thinking about US-China. I want to push a little bit on, on the status question and reassuring Putin. I, I just, whenever someone says we need to reassure Putin, I, I kind of bristle at that, mm. you know, just from like a, like a moral perspective, mm. right? I mean, here is a regime that is just engaging in an 
illegal war of aggression against a peaceful neighbor. Mm. And this idea that we somehow need to find a way to make Putin feel as if his status is being respected in the world to, to kind of fuel his delusions of grandeur and, you know, reassure him in some way. I mean, I, you know, I'm anti-war and I hope the war is ended, right? And I, I don't want to see war in the world. And so I'm, you know, I'm willing to put up with a lot to make that happen. But we also have to consider, from my perspective, the kind of signaling and precedent story that goes along with addressing the conflicts that are raging in the world today. Because every time we settle a conflict, we send a signal to the next uh, aggressor, to other states, saying, okay, here is what this country got out of its war, and maybe I need to reconsider my policy in that light. Mm. And, and so I worry that this whole conversation around reassurance of an illegal war of aggression is a problem for future potential aggressor, aggressors. I don't think I was trying to say that we should necessarily reassure Putin in the present. Correct. I think what I was trying to say, but maybe I didn't make it clear, was that the, the, the problem of reassurance may be at the root of the drivers of the, of the policy. Right, that if we reassure Putin in the, in the aughts uh, or the early aughts, we, be, we would be in a position today where we wouldn't have this conflict. Well, I'm, I'm not even going that far because I don't know whether he was reassurable. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the Jervis argument about, you know, uh, I mean, she, she, he used it in the context of Catherine the Great, you know, that which doesn't expand rots. And the idea that, you know, the Russian Empire had to kind of expand in order to be secure. So you get into this kind of argument that, you know, Glaser has this category of benign motives, but hostile expansionism. So, you know, he wants to argue that at the root, he has four kind of possibilities in his motives kind of box in terms of thinking about these different possibilities in terms of security, security-seeking states and greedy states. These different motives then lead to different things. But you, even if you don't argue that Putin is a greedy state before we get to 2014 and the annexation, even if he's a security seeker, it could be that that security required expansionist behavior. And that, that's a real problem because then you're, you're, you're accepting that these are ultimately security seekers in Glaser's terms. So, so, so back, to, back to Putin. It seems to me that the question is what could have been done differently. Okay. But if ultimately, you know, he's a prisoner's dilemma player in the language that Marcus was using that we often use. If in the end, you know, he's a greedy state and he's committed to rebuilding the Russian Empire and as soon as he sees weakness, you know, he will probe and push and everything, then obviously that's a very different world than the possibility that you might be able to kind of find a path to mutual security. And the difficulty is, of course, as Jervis pointed out in his review of Glaser's book, in the end, it, for policy, it's the same problem, whether it's driven by a greedy state that's doing these things and expanding or whether it's a benign motive state that's doing this. And as Jervis says, you know, you've got the same policies. I think that's important. And then just to pick up your other point, yeah, I don't want in any way to be read that I think that the answer to this conflict in some way is to sell the Ukrainians down the river and to do it, what I think Trump could well do if he's re-elected as president of the United States, which is potentially collude with Putin in order to potentially collide with Xi. But the collusion, I think, is could be very, very worrying indeed because, and obviously there's others who are more radical critics who are arguing that the war needs to come to an end and there needs to be a deal and so on. So I think the precedent-setting argument is very important. You know, as an English school scholar, I you know, would, would not want to underestimate these, the importance of this. And I also think the preferences point is very important, that uh, you know, the preferences of others can change in the light of what they see as responses. And that's why the diminishing international response to some extent in militarily in Ukraine and, you know, with the challenges of getting the budget through and getting the weapons to Ukraine is clearly very worrying because what mustn't happen is that Putin is seen to have had a military success here. Right. And so, so I don't want in any way to be read as someone who's arguing that accommodation now on the battlefield or anything like this is possible because I don't believe that that's where we are. But at the same time, I also don't believe that it would be good for international security for Russia to be so humiliated in this war that you could trigger a, a Russian nuclear red line. And one of the very nightmarish scenarios, of course, 
is that if Russia were to be pushed back out of Crimea so that the land bridge and all of the territory was lost and restored to what it was in 2014 in terms of Ukraine's sovereignty before the annexation, then you have to worry that that could be a red line and that in that context, Putin appears to be willing to go and gamble in the nuclear casino. And thanks to Nick Ritchie for that lovely formulation. And no previous Soviet leader or Russian leader up until Putin has exhibited that kind of gambling mindset. Now, it could be shelling, of course, the rationality of the irrational and the Nixon madman theory and all that, which a number of people have talked about. I mean, it could be that in the end, Putin knows that nuclear weapons are of such a fundamental magnitude that you just cannot treat them like conventional weapons. And I think Xi put a lot of pressure on Putin when there was discussion of these things in Russian circles. So I think the Chinese break shouldn't be underestimated either. But nevertheless, in a context where Putin either is being encouraged to do something by, you know, by the fact that the United States won't get involved in a big way or where there is a military turn on the battlefield, you could envisage a situation where the Russians used a few tactical nuclear devices to try to just shock the West into stopping any kind of support. And, of course, it would then pose a terrible, terrible security challenge because at that point, of course, it wouldn't be engaging NATO forces. It would be on Ukraine's territory. And so then the question about what the US and the West would do in response would be absolutely challenging in, the, in a way that, you know, nothing has been this challenging since probably 62. So I think that's kind of the context in which I would put all that. Let me just say for the record, I, I also am in the camp of not uh, trying to elevate Putin's status at the moment. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, but also like Nick, I am open to the idea that there was a moment in time where Putin was potentially, potentially reassurable, right? But, it, but like him, I'm also not even sure that this is the game that, that was, we were playing in the 2000s. And so it's a real difficult case. I'm, I'm reminded of um, you know, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only at the mm. falling dusk, right? It's like we – a lot of this stuff will be clear to us later. Uh, we'll understand the sort of realities that, that we were facing at the time. But I think your point about the 1980s is, is incredibly pertinent. Even when these things were being negotiated and the Cold War was ending peacefully, it didn't appear to the average person that that was happening. Mm. Right? So we, all, we don't always have a clear, clear mm. view of what's, mm. what's going on. The last thing I'll say about – I think um, the, the, the word humiliation has come up a number of times in this conversation, right? And it, it gets back to – you know, sort of like an internal leader-based, you know, emotional kind of response. And I think we both agree that Putin feeling humiliated is probably not a good thing. Uh, it might lead to more risk-accepting behavior. But it also plays a role in the – and we talk about the 1990s. I mean one of the things that was happening in Russia uh, was a certain level of political and economic humiliation. Those conditions might have given rise to Putin feeling like we have to restore this, you know, sort of national – uh, prestige and gain and gain status. So the, there's a role of humiliation here that I think is is playing both at the the mm -hmm. leader level, but also at a societal level mm. historically. Is, is that an excuse? What is that? Interest to me in Putin's internal dialogue that is causing this behavior. I, I mean, I I all of this is fascinating in kind of a a, a theoretical way, but in right now there's a war. Mm. Okay. I need to figure out what to do. Well, I don't. Nobody cares what I think. But people have to figure out what to do about this, this ongoing conflict. I mean, tracing this back to Putin's childhood and, you know, or his role in KGB and, you know, the neglect of his parents or whatever. I mean, how does that help me? Draw, draw a line, Marcus, for me from, from that kind of a story to my current policy challenge in Ukraine. I don't think it helps you in the present. Like, I, I think this is where um, we're not we're not equipped, not just Nick and I, but I don't think as, as a discipline, really equipped to figure out uh, the motivations of actors in the in the present case and how we should tie that to, to policy. Right. So I hear you making this argument that, like, right. we can't know now what the what the true story is. And so I just want to push on that, because mm. from a policy perspective, that's super unhelpful. Right. I mean, give, give me something. <laughs> mm. what, what, given that I cannot know whether we're in a, a security dilemma or whether it's a spiral model or a deterrence model or it's about status or it's about mm. uh, security reassurance, what do I do amidst that uncertainty to try to address the current policy challenges I face? I think we do what, what the Biden administration and the West have been, been doing, which is you, you help Ukraine fight this war to the extent that you're you know, comfortable doing so and not putting boots on the ground and, and antagonizing 
uh, Russia even further. Um, you are seeking a diplomatic resolution, presumably behind closed doors and, and trying desperately to find an area, a zone of possible agreement that is not being driven by Biden in the West, but is being driven by what the Ukrainians want. I mean, Jeff, you and I have talked about this a lot and on the podcast is, you know, this idea of sort of finding a solution, you know, from, a, from Biden's perspective or from the West's perspective, right? There's, there's, that would be nice and that would be great if we could find a solution. But ultimately, I think the solution has to be driven by the state that was invaded and find a solution that's comfortable uh, for them. So I, I don't actually think that um, what the West writ large is doing with respect to Ukraine is the wrong approach. I think they're doing the right things. I think it's a, it's a difficult sort of negotiated settlement to find because you, you want to – and I think the other, the other issue here too is that you know, with the election coming, there's this sort of ticking clock that is, is sort of on people's minds where you right. know that if Trump were to win, uh, as Nick was pointing out, this could have drastic consequences for policy towards Ukraine. So as we get closer to November, I think there's a, a, a greater ripeness, if you will, to, to try to find a negotiated settlement because you don't want, I don't think – the potential of a Trump presidency coming coming in, but to answer your question, I think I think the West is doing what what they should be doing. They're supporting Ukraine, trying to 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 do uh, the best that they can to find a diplomatic solution if there is indeed one available, and I I think there probably is one. But I also agree that none of the stuff that we've been talking about so far is really relevant for that particular process. I agree with that. So, so Nick, when you think about theory, mm. how how important is it to you that that theory, or is is it even a consideration whether that theory helps guide today's policy? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, if Steve Walt was here, I think he would, he would say, you know, look, you know, it's really important to think about the security dilemma. We should get him on the pod next week. Maybe next week's probably, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll fly down. You know, he, he, in his article in Foreign Policy, you know, he says the one about Ukraine war and international relations theory, which is a nice, very nice article. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, look, you know, you've got to understand the security dilemma. Of course, NATO doesn't have offensive intentions towards Russia, but they don't have that assurance. And that's exactly, of course, the problem in Able Archer. That was the peaceful defensive self-image that Reagan started to realize they don't see us as we see ourselves. We need to see ourselves through the eyes of them. So people like Walter saying, you know, the Ukrainians, I mean, I'm putting it slightly crudely, but the Ukrainians have to accept the realities of power politics. And they, you know, in the end, order between the great powers, you know, this is my English school kind of hat coming on a bit, you know, order between the great powers has to be privileged in the nuclear age over the sovereign rights of small states where that clash has arisen. So... If Walt was advising the Biden administration, there would no doubt be a lot of emphasis on the need to think about reassurance or putting it slightly differently and going with the shelling language, what we might call assurance, if you want, that Russia, if you don't do these things, then, you know, you won't get clobbered. But at the same time, trying to think about whether there's a way of kind of walking it back so that the Ukrainians keep something, but at the same time, the Russians also. So the kind of deal. But the problem with that is that if Putin is really driven in this way that we think he is, then any deal is going to be highly unstable. And the problem with the way Marcus has framed it with Ukraine is that I don't see under the Zelensky leadership any kind of willingness to moderate the aims. Now, it could well be that they have no choice because they'll find themselves materially more and more disadvantaged because there's a lack of external supply and Russian mass, just sheer mass, will force the Ukrainians into some kind of deal. But at the moment, the Ukrainians have got maximalist aims, and so have the Russians. And it becomes extremely difficult to find a zone of possible agreement in that situation. So policy-wise, a lot does come down to whether in the end you do think it's a security dilemma or not. And that is the problem. Because what Biden essentially is doing at the moment is they're framing it more fundamentally in terms of it being a deterrence conflict and that they're not really looking for ways to accommodate. But what they're doing is they're not – deterrence is working insofar as NATO is not going further. And, of course, for NATO to turn that war around or for NATO to ensure that the Ukrainians succeeded would require direct engagement of of NATO air power. And although there's training of pilots and there's potentially going to be planes, they're going to be planes flown by Ukrainians. They're not going to be planes flown by members of the alliance. 
So I, I think it's hard, in a sense, the policies that are being pursued on all sides are driven by theories. And that obviously is a kind of fairly obvious point to make. But in a sense, what we're, what the West is trying to do is kind of, is, is it's, it's trying to kind of hold on to the idea that there's some assurance in its policies, but really it's fundamentally around deterrence. What people like Walter are saying is you need, you need more, you need more reassurance in there. You need a bigger element of recognizing that you've got a peaceful defensive self-image running here and that you're not going to make progress until you do this. But I think, I think there's, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think there's a deeper problem here that lies at the root of this. And that is that we've got radically different philosophies of international relations in collision. And I think this is where the English school framing becomes really interesting. So I think Putin's operating with a notion of what we used to call, or what we still call, spheres of influence. And he thinks that Ukraine belongs to Russia's rightful sphere of influence. And he thinks that the other great power should keep out of their backyard. Just as the United States wants no great power in its backyard, Putin is wanting to make the same claim about Russia. And if you think about the way the West reacted to Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68, although materially the West was in no position to intervene, there was also, I think, some sense that that was part of the Soviet bloc, just as Guatemala, Dominican Republic and so on were part of the, the US bloc. And the reason why Cuba was so complicated in 62 was because Khrushchev was trespassing on the American backyard. And Khrushchev told Kennedy this through private correspondence before the missile crisis, through various intermediaries and family relations and people that kind of all got... He sent a few messages to Kennedy very privately that, you know, this is what's going on here kind of thing. You know, you you have to understand that if you're doing this in Berlin, you can't expect me not to... And you have to see the analogy here. So I think if you were to sit in the Foreign Office and have this conversation sort of in 56 or 68, I think there would be some notion that the way to manage great power relations is through this mechanism of spheres of influence. And Paul Keel wrote this lovely book under Hedley Ball's supervision called Unspoken Rules, which is about the way these spheres operated in the Cold War. But all that's broken down now. If you have a conversation with people in the West about spheres of influence, they become totally discredited. They're denying the agency of small states like Ukraine. So this whole idea of West planing that's become part of the discourse. And this idea of spheres of influence as mechanisms of great power management is fundamentally discredited in the liberal order. But we've got a a great power in Russia that wants to live in that old order. And we've potentially got a very powerful state in China that also wants to manage international relations in terms of that approach of spheres of influence and wants no American warships in the South China Sea, wants no American warships or air power buzzing around Taiwan and wants people out of their backyard or out of that maritime space and want to be left to do what they want to do. And the United States and other Western states are saying no. So I think that clash between the kind of the conception of international order that's held by Russia and China in terms of what great power responsibility and great power management looks like is fundamentally different from that which is held by the West. And that becomes an extremely difficult basis on which to get that notion of great power responsibility shared between the great powers without which international society ultimately can't thrive and and, and, and be sustained. And that's the space, I think, in which your concerns about precedence and so on have to be located. I think you made a really key point in there, which is that everyone everyone has a theory. Sometimes my students will say to me, why, why are we learning all this theory? You yeah. know, t- talk to me about policy. And, you know, my answer is always, well, everyone has a theory underlying their policy decisions. If you don't have a theory, you're acting aimlessly in the world. And the problem is that nobody articulates their theory. And we just see what they're doing, right? But, the, but, but underneath that, someone has a theory that they're working on. And so the importance of theory is that, like, if you have the wrong theory, you're going to have the wrong policy. Right. And sometimes the theory is a is, – I think it's a simplistic kind of folk – like, you know, Trump's foreign policy is like a sort of folk theory. But he, even he has a theory, I think. He might have a hard time articulating what it is, but he, he's, he's operating on some, some principle you have some about how he thinks the like, world works. I do this, they'll do that. Right. right? And that, that's a theory at the heart of it. Right. It's yeah. not necessarily an international relations theory, but it's a theory. 
Well, th- th- thank you both. Nick, thanks so much for, for joining us today. This has been a, a great discussion. Is there a place that folks can go to see your work? Are you active on the social medias, uh, the Twitters of the world? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Wheeler ICCS uh, on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty visible on, on, so I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty visible on social media. The book length version of my work that probably is most brings most of it together the best so far is my 2018 book trusting enemies but the book i'm very very proud of because i wrote it with ken booth who's an amazing scholar uh, been a tremendous supporter of my career or ever since i shipped up in abrosif in september 1985 is the security dilemma book that we wrote in 2008 uh, which is subtitled fear cooperation and trust which is the name of a module that i teach at birmingham at master's level and have done for 10 years now well i can endorse both of those books i hope everyone will We'll check them out and we'll include links in the show notes. Folks, if you want to reach out and let us know what we should be talking about, provide some questions or comments, you can reach us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Check out our online store, cheaptalk.shop. Buy some merchandise. Thanks so much, both of you. Thanks, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next week. But what, how do you edit the thing, though? Do you get rid of that sort of that, that, this talk now? Can you? No, this is going in. Ah. <laughs> I give him complete creative control. Normally, this is all there is. You're adding some actual content to the to the story, which is normally just me taking pot shots at Marcus. I'll piece it all together later. There, there's magic that happens behind the scenes wow. when he takes over. That's amazing. This will we'll all sound brilliant. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make myself sound really good, and and you, and then we'll like add some ums and verbal filler to Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do every week. You That's know? lovely. It's a good uh, thing I don't he, listen. He never listens, so he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on.